this name means things. This name means God as the one who has all authority, all power in earth and in heaven. And here's the beautiful thing about the Lord Shabbat is that this all-powerful God decides to work for you on your behalf, in your favor. Maybe you remember the story of Hannah, Samuel's mother. She was barren and, and scorned within well, uh, her husband had two wives and scorned by the other wives, scorned by society. So from the pressure from without was, you're not good enough, you can't even have a baby. And the pressure from within is, what's wrong with me? I can't have a baby. Yet she calls out not to the God Almighty, but to Yahweh Shabbat the one who has all authority, all power in earth and in heaven, and the one who acts on her behalf. She says that in her deep anguish, Hannah prays to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Shabbat, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him back to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. How wonderful it is. That we have the God who's the God of everything, the desire to work on your behalf. We have a God who controls all of heaven, all of earth. But it's the same God we can cry out. That's the God who restores. Another name we read a little bit in Ezekiel this morning. Another name they knew about God was the God of Yahweh Shelma, which means the Lord is near. And at the end of Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel sees the New Jerusalem. And he gets all the measurements of the New Jerusalem. And he ends it with this. He says, and the name of the city from that time on will not be Jerusalem. It'll be Shammah, the Lord is near. A promise to us that the God Almighty, to the God who controls everything and works on our behalf, promises to be near to us. That was what heaven was all about for Ezekiel. That these drive homes to begin the mighty army would work with God together. Why? Because God is near. And of course, there is no restoration without peace. And they know him also as Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Remember the story of Gideon. After God told all the time, Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and he called it what? The Lord is peace altar. And then there's the scripture in Genesis that, that that altar still stood even in the days of Joshua, or even in the days of Gideon, even in the days of David. That altar still stood. What does all this have to mean? It means that the people that Luke is talking about, the people that Jesus walked to, knew God is a God of restoration. Do we know God as the same? And for them, they define restoration as, God, you're almighty to restore me. God, you control everything to work on my behalf. God, you're near. God, you promised me peace. In fact, the entire story of God's first people was restoration. Remember Exodus. Remember the Torah. Remember the first five books of the Bible. Every single time, God has to remind us, who am I? I am Yahweh. The God who was, the God who is, the God who will be, the God who's working on your behalf. But I'm also the one who did what? Redeemed you out of Egypt, pulled you out of the bonds of slavery and bondage. I'm the one who what? Restored you. Or maybe they remember stories like Job. And we often tell the story of Job about how he lost everything. And he did. We tell the story about how Job didn't have anything left. 
But do we end the story with that God restored Job? Bless them twofold. They should have known the story of God in their larger story. They should have known the story of God in their personal story. They should have known that this God is God of resurrection, God of restoration. And this is why the psalmist loves to sing. You remember the one for those of us who grew up in church? We had this version. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He what? He restores my soul. Or maybe there's a song of Asaph, which says what? Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. I love that when they thought about restoration, it was for all God's people, but also the individuals. It was the God is my shepherd. But God also desires to restore us. But in our passage this morning, Luke is going to make this incredible claim. The God you knew in the Old Testament, the God of Israel, that the Lord of hosts, that the Lord Shama, that the Lord Shalom, that the Lord Shabaoth, Jesus Christ. And this same God who has power, this same God who controls heaven and earth, this same God who works on their behalf, this same God who's here, this same God who promises peace, is that's the perspective I want us to hold on to as we turn now to Luke chapter 8. Get your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 26 to 39. Um, you can also follow along on the screen, so we'll have it up front starting at verse 30, 26, 26 to 39. Luke right. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, some translation called it the Gadarenes, which is across the lake from the Sea of Galilee, across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. From a long time, had, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in the house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times they had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken the chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the event. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pig, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. And those tending the pigs saw what had happened. They ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. I don't think that's funny to pause there. They weren't afraid of the demons. They weren't afraid of demons going into pigs. They weren't afraid of demons going into pigs, running off the cliff, drowning in water. They were afraid of someone that God had transformed and put in their right mind. That'll freeze. That'll freeze. There might be nothing more terrifying to the world than you living for Jesus. That's what scared them. They found the man for whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed him in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demons of that man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. 
The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent them away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we pray this morning that you may indeed restore our souls, restore our spirits, restore even ourselves. Father God, you're the God of everything. And you're the only one who can restore us. You're the only one who can redeem us and rescue us. You're the only one who can reconcile us. And Lord, not just in the present, but for all eternity. By confessing our sins before you, by putting our faith in those Jesus and the work that he's done, by giving our lives to you, we can be restored. Lord, we pray this morning that you restore our souls. Lord, we pray this morning that you restore our spirits. Because there's some of us who have soul restoration this morning, but we have broken spirits because we have broken hearts. We are lonely and forsaken. We feel so far away from you and so far away from everything. We feel the burdens of this world. We feel the burdens of our life. Lord, we are beaten down. But praise God, we're not destroyed. We're be crushed on every side. But praise God, He's holding us together. So, Lord, we pray this morning that for those of us who are beaten down, Lord, restore our spirits. And, Lord, we pray this morning that you restore ourselves. So yes, we ask forgiveness for sins and falling short. We ask forgiveness for good life undone. We ask forgiveness for not shining our light. We ask forgiveness for not letting us be are. But we thank you that you're still the God Almighty, the God of heaven and earth, the God who works on our behalf, the God who redeems and rescues, the God who restores. In your name we pray, amen. What I love about this story is that if you're tracking along in Luke, in chapter 7 specifically, Jesus is going to violate just about every law. He violates racial laws by saying there's more faith outside of Israel than actually in Israel. He violates religious law by saying, y'all think y'all got it, but you're missing it. He violates moral taboos and moral laws by, by not only interrupting a funeral procession, but touching a dead body. But in all these things, he's not just doing it to be edgy. I think I, I, maybe you guys don't do this anymore. We're older and better now. But when I was in college, one of the cool things to do is to be an edgy Christian. And it was always funny as a kid who grew up in Southwest Philly to see what kids from Central Pennsylvania call edgy. And there were so people that were so upset to be an edgy Christian, right? Jesus doesn't save people to be edgy. Jesus doesn't break taboos because he's cool. Jesus does everything to bring people into the kingdom. So whatever you're defining your faith by, is it to actually bring people in? Or is it for you to feel cool? Because quite often, you might be the only one who thinks you're cool. That's another tech talk. Jesus breaks these taboos, but his entire work to break all these man-made things wasn't because he was edgy, but because he was loving. Because Jesus died and none would perish because he wanted people to come into the kingdom. So you go through Luke chapter 7, it's like breaking this after this after this. Why? To bring people in. And then in Luke chapter 8, Luke starts this transition. Even though we started in Jesus' hometown and home area, Luke has always had his picture on not Jerusalem, not Israel, but the world. So Luke is going to start following Jesus' journey to see how many, and he's seen kind of steps of it so far. 
But Luke is going to show how Jesus came for the world. And so there's this invitation to enter into the kingdom. It's not just for Israel, it's for all. And Luke seems to think, especially outsiders, too. Now, that can make it breathe a little easier. Because I don't know if you've got any DNA information, but it's a good chance every single one of us are Gentiles. Or mostly Gentiles. Luke realizes that when Jesus comes, he comes as a Jewish Messiah, but he comes to save the world. For God so loved Israel. For God so loved America. For God so loved the world. That's why Jesus comes. So there's this invitation then. It's for everyone. So Jesus tells this parable of the sower where he says, essentially God's word is not just for all, but it needs to not fall on rocky soil. It needs to not be stuffed out by the thorn. It needs to fall on good soil. And then Luke throws in Jesus' teaching after that, where Jesus says, you know who belongs to me? The people who are noble and with as I'm reading through some of this, I'm expecting to ask how many of us as Christians, not to our family who love us, not to our friends who love us, but to the world we interact with daily, how many people outside of the kingdom would look at us and say, you have a good and noble heart? Because I hear them call Christians all sorts of things, but I'm still waiting for them to call us a good and noble heart. That just happens to all of us. Because that's who belongs to Jesus. Not people who can say I belong to Jesus, but people who even outsiders can look at and see Jesus. Jesus says, my people are noble with a good heart. They hear the word. And a lot of us are Anabaptists who go to doing the word. And that's good. But in this passage, Jesus says, they hear the word and they retain the word. And that's important. Because there's so many of us who think we can do good in this world without God. We have our own moral center. We have our own uh, uh, right and wrong. And we know what's right and we do what's right. We don't need God to do what's right. You might be right on that. But I guarantee you, we can do more with God for the world than without God. You can do more for your sister and brother, empowered by the Holy Spirit, than led by your own spirit. You can do more working together with the body of Christ fighting to please on the island by itself. And so what happens here is that Jesus says, yeah, my people here and do the word, but they retain the word, and retaining what Jesus has taught us seems to be what he considers foundational for you to produce a good crop. So what does that crop look like? In Mark 8, he, or Luke 8, he says, you have to shine so others may see and glorify your Father in heaven. So as my family, yes. You hear the word, you retain the word, you produce crop. And what does that crop look like? My word in the past. And right before our passage, Luke is moving, 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 and saying, yes, for everyone. But I know it's for everyone, but the only ones who really get it are the ones who hear, listen, and do it. The ones who actually look like Jesus. The ones who have noble and good hearts. The ones who produce crop. The ones who shine to others and see and glorify Father. The ones who put in the passage. And after you get all of that, he sneaks in this story of Jesus having power over creation. Right before our passage, it's a famous passage where Jesus goes out into the water and people are like, whoa, the wind and the water, they all obey him. They listen to him. 
this is very intentional. He puts that there so you can be like, wow, the gospel's for everyone. This Jesus is different and powerful. Everyone, every single person. But in that culture, it wasn't as the wind and the water and the waves that they were terrified of. And Luke is going to spend most of the chapter, most of our text, on this demon possession. And I think that's significant. Because the people, especially the Gentiles, could believe in magic. They could believe in magic. They can actually have sorcerers, and they can do stuff and manipulate, you know, the, 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 the wind, maybe. Manipulate the ocean, maybe. Manipulate the galaxy, maybe. But they couldn't manipulate demons. I think that's fascinating. And maybe it's just because I grew up in Liberia and everything's a demon. Right? And we're just a bunch of, like, retired southerners. Right? But it's like, everything's a demon. You stuff yourself. That's the devil. Right? You burned your post. That was definitely the devil. But the thing is, Luke wants you to know that Jesus isn't a magician. He's a Messiah. And how he's going to say is that, yeah, he has power over wind and water, but this Jesus even has power over demons. So our story begins with Jesus sailing from Galilee into Gentile lands. And what I love about uh, Christian scholars is we love to debate stuff that doesn't matter. And one of the most famous debates is this Pharisees the Gadarene. I know you were wondering that too. That's like, we're in there for you. Right? Another debate is, is it just happening in the Decapolis, which is like the Gentile region of ten cities, or is it one city that's happening in particular? And here's the best part about it. No one knows. But they swear they know. And they write PhD dissertations on it, and they make the entire point. What's the point? The point is Jesus is leaving home to go to the Gentiles. He doesn't care where you are in the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. What you need to know is that Jesus is no longer among his people. That should wake us up a little bit. Because when we think of Jesus' ministry, we think of what he did in Jerusalem and Galilee. But this is a story that says, no, 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 no. He left home to go to the world. John didn't just make up for God to love the world. Jesus is interacting not just with Samaritans, but now he's interacting with, with all of the Gentiles. And so he leaves home, gets on the other side of Galilee, enters into Gentile land. And I don't know about you, but when you travel and you enter into a new country, there's something called custom that loves to greet you. Now, what I love about America is they don't care when you're leaving. Like this country, you can just take anything in your suitcase when you're leaving. When you come back, you're like, wait, what's going on that food? Like, sir, it was in my bag before. It can't come back in. Like, sir, it was in my bag before, but it's not. Right? Like, so countries, when you enter into a new country, you're in a hyper custom. And the customs represent the power of that country to allow you to come. I think it's very significant that Luke says what? When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon for that man. You thought you had bad customs officers before. I think it's significant that he leaves Galilee to turn him friends family, he gets on the boat, he goes to the other side, and before he can put his second foot on the ground, he's not at a custom agent, and a custom agent is nothing but a demon to them. Now, for those of us in America, we might believe in spiritual warfare, 
but we like to see it in everything that tells us where we live. And for those of us who grew up outside of the West, we see it everywhere. And one of the things that Christians, except us Westerners, but one of the things that Christians do, how Christian history has always said, is that when you enter into new regions, you might just interact with what? New demons. And seem to believe that demons could be perfectly tied to a land. And some of us are like, no, it's tied to social media. It might be. Right? It might be. I'm not saying that you go out there, it's probably there too. It might be region upon region there. But one of the things that we don't think about is that when we enter into new lands, we're entering into new spiritual battles, spiritual strongholds. And before Jesus got his feet on the ground, he's greeted by this customs agent. And what I love about this is that even though this man is possessed by a demon, he still cries out to God. You know, often in this pulpit, starting conversations, we'll tell people, you don't have to be right to get right with God. What I mean by that is you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be like, you know what I mean? I'm going to do, I'm going to get on the right road and now I'm going to come to church. Right? I'm, I'm going to start doing right and I'm going to go for like three, four days when I get to day five, then I'm ready. This man is demon possessed and still cries out to God. What's our excuse? What's our excuse? And, and, and then when Luke breaks it down, you know, often we, we focus on legion and the demons. But I want to talk about this brother a little bit. There's some things we know about him. He suffered for a long time. Also, when we think of demons, that's when we think about the evil they do, the destruction they do, but we forget about the, 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 the people that house him. He suffered for a long time. He was naked. He was alone. He was alone. He was the dead. So not only does he have this thing in his body that he can't control, this thing that's acting that he can't do anything about, but he's not even close enough for a friend or family member to put a robe around him and cover his face with He has no relationship. No one wants anything to do with him, so he would rather, I don't know if that's a bad way to say it, he'd rather, his only place to go was the cemetery. And I'm not talking about our cemetery, Right? I think that would be nice compared to where he went to. We're talking about doldrums. We're talking about caves. We're talking about where people would literally wait for the body to die. He's supposed to throw the bones in there. Like, that's where he hung out. That's the only place he felt safe. Or that he could be. So demons possess him. Stripped him of not only his humanity, but probably his family. Probably human affection, human touch, human community. Except him of every single thing. That the only place he could be was among the dead. Yet when he sees Jesus, he still cries out for Jesus. He cries out for restoration. And I love that. Even with a demon inside of him, even with a legion inside of him, he cried out because when he saw Jesus, he saw power. He saw God's presence. And he saw God's He cried out, Jesus! But the demons aren't in the business of letting you go. And so even though his humanity he's fighting for cries out to Jesus, right? For a long time, the man had no clothes, lived, didn't live in the house, lived in the tools. When he saw Jesus, cried out, fell at his feet, shot him top of his lungs. Even though he's crying out to Jesus, Jesus takes over. 
when a leader takes over, it's as fascinating as a feast. Because it's like, what do you want with me? He's the son of the most high. Now, it's easy to read that and be like, wow, he knows who Jesus is. He's exalting Jesus, the son of the most high. Until you remember, you're not in Israel anymore. You're not in Capernaum anymore. You're not in uh, Jerusalem anymore. You're in Gentile lands. And in Gentile lands, one of the ways you assert your authority over any spirit is to name it. We still kind of have that. I mean, this is a terrible example, but God forgive me. We name our children. Right? Like, like, we name our children, right? Like, like their identity, we basically try to give it to them from the very start. We might connect it to other people, other meetings, all that stuff. Like, we name our children. That's a fairly significant thing that we, that's a gift that we give them, right? Same kind of thing in the first right here. Right? Legion, Legion wants to basically, in my culture, we say, son Jesus. Right? Legion wants to assert authority over Jesus. He doesn't call him the most high because he's bowing down. Remember, the man falls down and bows down, right? Legion picks him back up and says, Oh, you're Jesus, son of the most high. He's blaming him because he wants to have power and authority over Jesus. That's how it works in some of these spiritual battles. When you name it, I mean, you might not think it's spiritual warfare, but some of us do. There's some people who get on the pulpit and say, Well, I've named it and claimed it. We might think that's some demon situation, but that's just me. Right? That's another tech talk. But Legion wants to name Jesus, not because Legion is bowing down to Jesus, but Legion wants to assert authority over Jesus. And I love that Luke wrote in this old commentary, for Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of him. Many times it sees them, he had broken the chains and, and, and kept the guards, right? And so he asked or named Jesus. And without dying out of it, he stares down Legion and says, Oh, look, what is your name? I love that. Because Jesus could have gone back and forth, right? He could have you're the son of the most high. Jesus could be like, you're a legion. And now that's there. Like, they're fighting back and forth, right? Jesus says, you name my name. I'm going to make you submit and tell me your name. This is a powerful name. A lot of us think of Jesus as a docile creature, you know? Peace and peace, right? And most of the time, he is. But when a demon has his power, he just goes to war. And what he does here is that you want to name me, you're going to bow down and tell me your name because I am the son of the most high. And at that, there's a shift in the conversation. Though many within him, they all submit. So powerful, thank you, Jesus. And they cry out and say, please don't send us to the abyss. In ancient Jewish thinking, demons could not only be taken out of a person, but demons could not. And here's the thing. The reason so fear Jesus that Legion chose death in the abyss. What they believe the abyss was, they believe that God has the power to not only pull them from the earth, but to put them in a place, right, where they had no influence, just torture forever. And so he says, I don't want to go to the abyss. And I love that this prideful Legion who's pumping his chest out when Jesus says, no, 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 what is your name? He switched. There's a submission here. There's a, the powerful now, now they're fearing Jesus. The legion that tortures a man now faces its own torture and agony. And I said this before when I was reading the text. The people saw all of this happening. And it's interesting because they were herders, right? It's another sign that we know of Gentile lands because you never find a group of, of ancient Israelite people who are pig farmers. 
Like, it just doesn't exist in their culture, right? Like, pigs are dirty, they're unclean, you don't touch them. Some of us say they're delicious, but that's enough for right? They're dirty, they're unclean, you never touch them. So that's another sign that Jesus is in the Gentile land. So they see everything, right? And there's some commentators that be like, yeah, they were, they were just aggrieved by the, the economic uh, toll of losing their, their precious faith, right? And maybe, but at this point, they didn't seem to do it. Like, they saw the whole thing, the Gita pigs go off, the, the, I call them Gita pigs, the Gita pigs go off the cliff, fall into the thing, they see them drown. And they're still like, whoa, y'all, y'all won't believe what happened today. Ha <laughs> ha, this Jesus showed up, and like, there's a, there's a, I don't know, like, the wind blew, and the pigs started like, oh, what? And then they ran off the cliff, right? Like, that was the story they were telling. Like, they thought it was something cool. Like, some of us will go to a movie and see 3,000 people killed and walk out the movie and watch. That was awesome. Right? Same thing, right? Right? Like, so that was just entertainment for the afternoon, right? Until, until they come back and they see the man who is human to death. Whoa. Sitting at Jesus' feet and in his right mind. For some reason, <laughs> the legion, the pig, the drowning, that the life of the man lived. None of that scared them. But him being restored was scary to them. And when they see that, they go now and they come back. And what do they do? They drive Jesus out of town. Right? Like they literally are so scared that they drive Jesus out of town. And they didn't do it because they believed. They did it because at this point they thought Jesus was a magician. They're like, listen, we've seen this with the river before. But like you make the pigs down and then healing man like this and this is too much. Get out of here. And I love that Jesus is like one. He gets up, he touches his eyes, and he frees him. Remember that brother who was feeling for that. He comes back to Jesus. He's healed. And, 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 and so he says, Listen, Lord, Lord, I just want to go. I just want to be with you. Thank you, right? You redeemed me. Like I said, I just want to go. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. And he's dead. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. You know, some people say this is the first Gentile evangelist in the scripture. I say it's a reminder to us that God's calling some of us to go home too. Because it's easy to leave home and talk about Jesus. But some of us going home means that we need to go to places where we cause the hurt. We need to go to places where we cause the brokenness. We need to go to places that are not reconciled. We need to go to places that are hard. It's easier to get up and go somewhere else and say, God is good! But what about the people who know you the most and they don't believe you? I love that Jesus' mission is like, yes, I came to share the gospel. They didn't listen. But you know what? Listen to you. And I love this mission. It's a reminder to us that God has a mission for all of us. And sometimes that mission is not going on the other side of the world, it's going home again. Only you know who you know. Only you have the people who are your people. Only you can be a mission to them. I love that that's what Jesus demands of him, right? He says, yeah, you can come along with me, and, and, and that, that'd be great. But you know what would be even better? Is when I leave, you too. 
you make room. You feel the need that destruction that you cause, you go fight for reconciliation. The alienation from your family, you go and, and bring your family back together. And that's what one of the fascinating things in the gospel is that when Jesus is with his people, they say, You're the Messiah! And Jesus is like, I'm the Messiah. Right? You know, like, who they want? Now that's not really cool, right? When he leaves Jerusalem and Galilee, right? And, and his people, and it says, This is magic! He's like, This ain't no magic, I'm the Messiah! And I love that about Jesus, right? Because when Paul says, I'm going to be all things to all people, right? That might win some, he learned that from Jesus. And so Jesus goes to this man and says, listen, what I want you to do is to stay home, go home. And for some of us, somebody in this room needs more they need to go home. Somebody needs to go and say, where have I caused brokenness? God needs me to be a tool of healing. Now, where I might not have been demon for that, actually, you see my teenage years, maybe. Where have I caused destruction? But God now needs me to help heal build up. Who are the people who are my people that they might not listen to you or you or you, but they might listen to me? Who are the people God's calling me to? What I love about Luke's telling of Jesus being restoration is that God's restoration can come in power. Remember, they call him God Almighty. I had a friend this week, we had a great conversation. And, and she was a little bit frustrated with some uh, particular evil that is in the world. And it's just like, I just wish God could eradicate and take it all out. I looked in the eye and I said, yeah, me too. But the thing is, God has said he will put you in that place to eat the elephant one bite at a time. You might not be able to eradicate all of this problem, but my goodness gracious, you might be able to love one person, hold one person, carry one person, help one person through. And that's God. So all of us want God to come in power and eradicate all the evil, all the darkness, all the bad things. Will remind us me that we can't do anything without being people of prayer. So I think the first thing about God's restoration coming in power is we ought to be praying for one another, especially those of us who are brave enough to go home or go into the darkness and try to be the light. We ought to be people who are praying. In our culture, we're really good about praying and having our prayer requests. So I'm always inspired by the priests among us here this morning whose prayer list includes more people outside of their homes than, than their own, like, their, their own family, right? I think that's the kind of people we ought to be. If we want God to come in power, if we want restoration to come from God Almighty, we ought to be people who pray. And yes, there's problems in the world, but guess what? 2,000 years ago, there were problems in the world. 2,000 years from now, if you don't come back, there's still going to be problems in the world. Your job is to what? Eat that elephant one bite at a time, hold that person, carry that person, love that person, see that person, Put them through! And then pray for them too. We ought to be people who pray. Because restoration can come in power not just for them, but for you. There's so many of us in this room who are dealing with life brokenness, life pain, who are dealing with either decisions we made or sometimes decisions other people made that impact us, right? There's so many of us who feel lonely, who feel forsaken feel not good enough, who feel like, why would God care about little old me? I want you to remember the story of Hannah. I want you to remember 
but she called him the God of heaven and earth. Not just God Almighty, but the God who controls everything. And she said, God who controls everything, please come help me. You can ask God for help. That's okay. There's so many of us holding so much and wondering why everything is falling. You're not meant to hold everything. Most of us can't even hold ourselves together. Not trying to hold yourself together while holding other things a little bit hard, right? Let it go. Give it to your Lord in prayer. I also think God's restoration should come in presence. And so all of us need to get better at experiencing God's presence. And for most of us, that involves pausing, stopping, and for you, it might be taking a day off and unplugging. I trust that. For all of us, every single day, we should be building within our calendar, not just time to connect with the Lord, but time to see God move. See, here's the thing. Monday, you're off. Most of you are off, right? And some people are like, Martin Luther King Day of Service. And I look at their schedule, I'm just like, this is a lot, right? right? So that's how most of us live. Sometimes we don't see what God is doing, what God is moving, because we're running too fast. I don't know if you ever try to see something clearly running and sprinting and just doesn't happen. Right? Like if I put a picture in there and you ran by you're not going to see it clearly. You have to stop, come back, go in front of the picture, sit there, look at it. we got to be better at pausing. Life is too heavy, life is too fast, we are too busy. You want to see God move? Stop. Build it into your schedule to stop. And in some days, you might only have five minutes, and that's okay, right? My favorite is when everybody in my house is sleeping. I'm blessed. That's like 9.37 p.m. I can't wait till night. Like, when my kids are up past night, I'm like, what is wrong, y'all? Go to sleep. Like, this is my time, right? We all have to build into our schedule time to stop, time to pause, time to actually enter into the presence of God, time to even just reflect on the day that we're on. I was driving there to pick up my kids a couple of nights ago, and right up there on Greenwood, someone ran a stop sign. Ran it, and I saw it happening. Now, y'all might not know this, but I'm very experienced in car accidents. I've been hit by three or four cars, I've been rear ended, front ended. I just, it just, it, it just finds me. And trust me, it's never my fault. This time, it definitely wasn't my fault. I saw it all happening, and it was a big uh, Domino's delivery. He was on his phone, not paying attention. None of us ever do that. He was on his phone, not paying attention. And I literally saw him steaming too late. I planned, he planned, and I kicked him in the box right up here on Greenwood. I think it was Sunday night, actually, after the meeting. He cut, like, just like the cars came together and stopped perfectly at the top. And we looked at each other, and he was just getting like this. And I tell you what, I never sang praises more happily. Right? Like, I never sang more happily in my life because I was like, hey, like, I'm going to get people leaving church. Like, this is nice, right? Like, I'm going to get people when I'm doing something wrong, right? But even more serious than that, after he pulled the list, after the adrenaline faded, all I had left was praise. And I hate, 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 hate that it took that, that day for me to stop and praise the Lord. Build in pauses to your schedule to praise, to reflect, to remember. And then the last thing I want to give us before the rest of you comes up 
It's God's restoration. It comes in power, so we need to pray for others. It comes in power, so we need to pray for ourselves. It comes in pressure, so we have precious pauses. It comes in peace, so we all can practice peace. And when Jesus tells this man to go home, a lot of us are evangelists at heart. So we say, he's going to go and preach the gospel. But I want you to remember who this man was. He was demon possessed. He was kicked out. He was confined to the tomb. There was a level of destruction that he did that I hope none of us will ever do. And God still sends him back. So I hope one of you, some of you, somebody in this room is challenged this morning to go back to those dark spaces, to go back to the carnage you caused, to go back to the, to, to the brokenness maybe you caused, or maybe just go back to the family that, that you sworn off, right? One of the things that breaks my heart about our Anabaptist circles is we're so good at judging. And it's not just the Amish. There's so many of us that I don't talk to him no more. It's like, isn't that your uncle? I don't talk to him anymore, right? I don't think that's what we ought to look like. Now, I'm not saying go back to a situation that's going to put you in pain and then struggle and hurt. But I am saying we are not people who throw people away. Because our God doesn't throw us away. Sometimes we ought to go home, amen? And sometimes we're the only ones who can go home and peace that direction. Amen? I can invite up the worship team. Uh, we're going to close singing Ben is free to Ben. And it begins Ben it. And then again, as part of the song, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to come. I think that's very, very important because if we're going to be people who are, are waiting for God's restoration, we need the Holy Spirit. If we want God's power to be seen in our world and ourselves, we need the Holy Spirit. If we're going to pause and reflect and, and, and then pause and stop the praise and just think about all the goodness of God, we need God's Spirit to interpret that for us. And if we're going to be people who actually practice peace, who are bridge makers, who are actually reconciling with our sisters, our brothers, our mothers, our fathers, our aunts, and our uncles, we need the Spirit to help. We have the pastors in the room. If you'd love to come up, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, maybe some, something's up in the service this morning, or maybe you're like, you know what? I'm going to try to do this again. You don't just have to come up with something sad. Come up and tell us good things too. Right? We want to pray with you as well. But whatever you want to pray for, we'd love to pray for you. We all need to be out there in the world shining our light. And we can't do it without the Holy Spirit, without each other praying for each other, without rooting on each other. So let's say this thing together. Thank you, Jesus.